Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This spring, Americans will commemorate the 100th anniversary of the United States' entry into World War I. Throughout this year and next, events around the state will explore and remember Connecticut's special role as the arsenal of the nation in what was once called the War to End All Wars. To help whet your appetite for some of the surprising stories ahead, I'm going to retell Cleveland Moffat's tale of the World War I German invasion of Connecticut. It's a home front story to end all home front stories just ahead on Grading the Nutmeg. The German Invasion of Connecticut, abridged from the conquest of America in 1921 A.D., Extracts from the Diary of James E. Langston, War Correspondent of the London Times, by Cleveland Moffat, New York, George H. Doran Company, 1916. Prelude When World War I began in 1914, most Americans were adamantly opposed to American participation in that struggle. President Woodrow Wilson, who had won the electoral vote for president in 1912, but lost the popular vote by more than a million and a half votes, was re-elected in 1916 largely on the strength of his campaign slogan, He Kept Us Out of War. Cleveland Moffat, author and former foreign correspondent for the New York Herald, viewed Americans' efforts to ignore the global conflict with grave concern. So in a story serialized in the pages of the national magazine McClure's and published a year later in book form, Moffat riveted readers with a disturbing though fictional account of a 1921 invasion of America by a 300,000-man German army. In gripping detail, he described the German forces' surprise capture of New York City and the subsequent invasion and conquest of Connecticut. His warning was clear. Americans should prepare for war whether they wanted to or not because the war could come to them with surprise and fury. The story is interesting today because of the unique perspective it gives us of Connecticut's cities and towns at the beginning of the Great War and the attitudes Connecticut's had to that war prior to American involvement. Here, excerpted from Cleveland Moffat's The Conquest of America in 1921, is The German Invasion of Connecticut. Meantime, the United States from coast to coast was seething with rage and humiliation. This incredible, impossible thing had happened. New York City was held by the enemy, and its greatest citizens, whose names were supposed to shake the world, Rockefeller, Morgan, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, were helpless prisoners. General Wood's defeated army had been driven back into New Jersey and was awaiting there for von Hindenburg's next move, 
praying for more artillery, more ammunition, more officers, and more soldiers. Let this nation be threatened, Secretary of State Bryan had said, and between sunrise and sunset a million men would spring to arms. Well, this was the time for them to spring, but where were the arms? Nowhere. It would take a year to manufacture what was needed, a year to make officers, a year to make soldiers, and the enemy was here with mailed fist thundering at the gates. On June 5th, von Hindenburg, with an army of 125,000, began his march toward Trenton, and General von Kluck, who had arrived with the 2nd Expedition, started for Boston with an equal force. This left 50,000 German troops in Brooklyn to control New York City and to form a permanent military base on Long Island. General Wood's position was terribly difficult. He had 20,000 regulars, not half of whom had ever seen active warfare. And against these, von Hindenburg was advancing with 125,000 veterans who had campaigned together in France and who were equipped with the best fighting outfit in the world. General Wood decided, with the approval of the president, to make a stand against von Hindenburg and save Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington, if he could, and to leave New England to its fate. General von Kluck's army, unresisted, had marched into Connecticut up to a line reaching from beyond Bridgeport to Danbury to Washington, and had occupied New Rochelle, Greenwich, Stanford, South Norwalk, and Bridgeport. The Germans advanced about 15 miles a day, living off the country and carefully repairing any injuries to the railways so that men and supplies from their Long Island base could quickly follow them. Von Kluck's staff was accompanied by the Crown Prince and the venerable Count Zeppelin, both of whom seemed more interested in this New England occupation than in the activities of von Hindenburg's army. They realized, it appears, the great importance of controlling the industrial resources, the factories and machine shops of Connecticut and Massachusetts. It was this interest, I may add, that led to the first bloodshed on Connecticut soil. Thus far, not a shot had been fired by the invaders, who had been received everywhere by sullen but submissive crowds. Only a small part of the population had fled to the north and east, and the activities of occupied towns and cities went on very much as usual under German orders and German organization. The horrible fate of Brooklyn, the wreck of the Woolworth and Singer buildings were known everywhere, and if New York City, the great metropolis, had been forced to meek surrender by the invaders, what hope was there for Stanford and Bridgeport and South Norwalk? But in Hartford, a different spirit was stirring. By their admirable spy service, their motorcycle service, and their airplane service, the German staff were informed of defiant Hartford crowds gathering in Bushnell Park, of the Putnam phalanx parading in Continental uniforms, and of the governor's first company foot guards marching past the monument where the Charter Oak had stood facing the South Congregational Church, and of patriotic speeches from beside the statue of Nathan Hale on Main Street. 
also in New Haven, City of Elms and of Yale College, the second company of Governor's Foot Guards and the valiant New Haven Grays, followed by cheering crowds, had marched down Chapel and Meadow Streets to the Second Regiment Armory, home of the joyous junior promenades, and here vehement orators had recalled how their ancestors, the Minutemen of 1776, had repelled the British there to the west of the city where Columbus and Congress and Davenport Avenues meet at the Defenders Monument. Why should not this bravery and devotion be repeated now in 1921 against the Germans? Why not? The answer was spoken clearly in a widely published appeal to the people of New England made by the governor of Connecticut and supported by Simeon E. Baldwin, ex-governor of the state, and Arthur T. Hadley, president of Yale in which the utter folly and hopelessness of resistance without army or militia was convincingly set forth. Professor Taft declared it was the duty of every loyal citizen to avoid nameless horrors of bloodshed and destruction of property by refraining from any opposition to an overwhelmingly superior force. We entered New Haven on June 12th, and for 48 hours there was no disorder. German siege guns were placed on the sheer precipice of East Rock, ranged alongside the gray shaft of the soldier's monument dominating the city. Machine guns were set up at the four corners of the green, at points surrounding the college buildings, and at other strategic points. Students were not allowed to leave the college grounds without military permission. To further ensure the good behavior of the city, 20 hostages were taken, including ex-president William Howard Taft, President Arthur T. Hadley of Yale University, Thomas G. Bennett, ex-president of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, Major Frank J. Rice, ex-governor Simeon E. Baldwin, Edward Malley, General E. E. Bradley, Walter Camp, and three members of the graduating class of Yale University, including the captains of the baseball and football teams. These were held as prisoners within the gray granite walls and towers of Edgerton, the residence of Frederick K. Brewster. As staff headquarters, General von Kluck and the Crown Prince occupied the palatial white marble home of Louis Stoddard, the famous polo player. The trouble began on June 14th, when the invaders tried to set going the manufacturing activities of New Haven, shut down during the past week, especially the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, employing about 11,000 men, and the Sargent Hardware Manufacturing Company, employing 8,000. Large numbers of these employees had fled from New Haven in spite of offers of increased wages, so that the Germans had been obliged to bring on men from New York to fill their places. This led to rioting and scenes of violence with a certain amount of looting in various parts of the city, and toward evening German troops fired upon the crowds, killing and wounding about 200. In punishment of this insubordination, General von Kluck ordered the guns on East Rock to destroy the Hotel Taft and the new post office building, and this was done as the sun was setting. He also ordered that two of the hostages, chosen by lot, should be led out before Vanderbilt Hall at the corner of College and Chapel Streets the next day at noon and shot. 
However, this grim fate was averted through the intercession of an American woman, a white-haired lady whose husband, a northern general, had fought with Count Zeppelin in the American Civil War, and who at midnight went to the Whitney Mansion, where the Count and his staff were quartered, and begged on her knees for mercy. And for the sake of old times and old friendship, Count Zeppelin had this penalty remitted. Chapter 8 After the pacification of New Haven and the reestablishment of its industries, our division of the German army, numbering about 5,000 men, swung to the north through Wallingford, Meriden, and Middletown and marched toward the capital of the state. I shall always remember the morning of June 17, 1921, when at the request of the Crown Prince, I rode at his side for an hour before we entered Hartford. I was amazed at the extent of the Prince's information and at his keen desire for new knowledge. He asked about the number of men employed in the Hartford rubber works, in Colt's armory, in the Pratt and Whitney machine shops, and spoke of plans for increasing the efficiency of these concerns. He knew all about the high educational standards of the Hartford High School. He had heard of the Hotel Highline and of the steel tower built by its proprietor on the highest point of Talcott Mountain, had already arranged to have this tower used for wireless communication between Hartford and the German fleet. He knew exactly how many Germans, Italians, and Swedes there were in Hartford, exactly how many spans there were in the new $3 million bridge across the Connecticut. He looked forward with pleasure to occupying as his Hartford headquarters the former home on Farmington Avenue of Mark Twain, whose works he had enjoyed for years. "'You know Mark Twain was a great friend of my father's,' said the Crown Prince." I remember how my father laughed one evening at the palace in Berlin when Mark Twain told us the story of the jumping frog of Calaveras County. It's rather a pity that afterward Mark... But never mind that. Your Imperial Highness has a wonderful memory for details, I remarked. That is nothing, he smiled. It's our business to know these things. That is why we are here. We must know more about New England than the New Englanders themselves. For example, ask me something. Does your Imperial Highness, I began. But he stopped with a jolly laugh. I can still see the eager boyish face under its flashing helmet and the slim, erect figure in its blue and silver uniform. Never mind the Imperial Highness, he said. Just ask some questions. Any questions about Hartford? Insurance companies, I suggested. Ah, of course I know that. We considered the insurance companies in fixing the indemnity. Hartford is the richest city in America in proportion to her population. Let's see. Of her life insurance companies, the Aetna has assets of about $120 million dollars. The Travelers, about a hundred million. The Connecticut Mutual, about seventy million. The Phoenix Mutual, about forty million. Besides half a dozen small fly fire insurance companies, we are letting them off easily with twenty million dollars indemnity. 
Don't you think so, Mr. Langston? This informal talk continued for some time, and I found the prince possessed of equally accurate and detailed information regarding other New England cities. It was positively uncanny. He inquired about the Bancroft Japanese collection in Worcester, Massachusetts, and wanted to know the number of women students at Wellesley College. He asked if I had seen the portrait by Sir Joshua Reynolds at the Athenaeum in Providence. He had full details about the United States Armory at Springfield, and he asked many questions about the Yale-Harvard boat races at New London, most of which I was, fortunately, able to answer. Frederick William was curious to know what had given Newport its great popularity as a summer resort, and asked me to compare the famous cottages of the Vanderbilts, the Belmonts, the Astors along the cliffs with well-known country houses in England. He knew that Sconset on Nantucket Island was pronounced Sconset, and he had read reports on marine biology from Woods Hole. He even knew the number of watches made at Waltham every year and the number of shoes made at Lynn. I was emboldened by the Crown Prince's good humor and friendly manner to ask the favor of an interview for publication in the London Times, and to my great satisfaction this was granted the next day when we were settled in our Hartford quarters, with the result that I gained high commendation. In fact, my interview not only made a sensation in England, but was cabled back to the United States and reprinted all over America. Needless to say, it caused bitter resentment in both countries against Frederick William. The responsibility for the present war between Germany and the United States must be borne by England, he said in this memorable utterance. It was the spirit of hatred against Germany, spread through the world by England and especially spread through America, that made the United States unwilling to deal with the imperial government in a fair and friendly way, touching our trade and colonizing aspirations in South America and Mexico. We Germans regard this as a most astonishing and deplorable thing, that the American people have been turned against us by British misrepresentations. Why should the United States trust England? What has England ever done for the United States? Who furnished the South with arms and ammunition and with blockade runners during the Civil War? England. Who placed outrageous restrictions upon American commerce during the Great European War and in direct violation of international law prohibited America from sending foodstuffs and cotton to Germany, England? What harm has Germany ever done to the United States? Turn over the pages of history. Remember brave General Steuben, a veteran of Frederick the Great, drilling with Washington soldiers at Valley Forge. Remember the German General de Cab, who fell pierced by red-coat balls and bayonets at the Battle of Camden. Remember General Herkeheimer with his band of German farmers who fought and died for American independence at the Battle of Oriskany. Then go to Greenwood Cemetery and look at the graves of German soldiers, rows and rows of them, who gave their lives loyally for the Union at Antietam, at Bull Run, and at Gettysburg. 
The United States is a great nation with vast resources, he went on, but these have largely been wasted owing to the inefficiency and corruption inevitable in all democracies. Your Imperial Highness does not think much of American efficiency? The prince threw back his head with a snort of contemptuous amusement. Ha! What can one expect from a government like yours? A government of incompetence, politicians, office seekers. I beg your pardon, I protested. I do not mean to offend you, he laughed. But hasn't the whole world known for years that America was utterly defenseless? Haven't you Americans known it since 1914? Haven't you read it in all your newspapers? Hasn't it been shouted at you from the housetops by all your leading men? And yet your senators, your congressmen, your presidents, and their cabinet officers did nothing about it, or very little. Is that what you call efficiency? America remained lacking in all that makes for military preparedness, did she not? And she tried to be a world power and defend the Monroe Doctrine. She told Germany in 1915 what Germany might do with her submarines and what she might not do. Ha! We were at a disadvantage then, but we remembered. You, with your third-rate navy and your tenth-rate army, told us what we might do. Well, you see where your efficiency has brought you now. I sat silent until this storm should pass, and was just making bold to speak when the prince continued. Do you know where America made her great mistake? Oh, what a chance you had and missed it. Why did you not declare war on Germany after our invasion of Belgium, or after the sinking of the Lusitania, or after the sinking of the Arabic? You had your justification, and with your money and resources, you could have changed the course of the Great War. That is what we feared in Berlin. We were powerless to hurt you then, and we knew you would have time to get ready. Yes, if America had gone into the war in 1915, she would be the greatest power on earth today instead of being a conquered province. These words hurt. America is a long way from being a conquered province, I retorted. He shook his head good-naturedly, whereupon I resolved to control my temper. It would be folly to offend the prince and thus lose my chance to secure an interview of international importance, which this proved to be. Behold New York already, he continued. Within three weeks we shall hold New England. Within three months we shall hold your entire Atlantic seaboard. We may win back our lost territory, said I. Never. We are conquerors. We will stay here exactly as the Manchu conquerors stayed in China, exactly as the Seljuk conquerors stayed in Asia Minor. Your military strength is broken. Your fleet will be destroyed when it reaches the Caribbean. How can you drive us out? Our population is over a hundred million. China's population is over 300 million, and a handful of Japanese rule her. Remember, 
America is not like Russia with her heart deep inland. The military heart of America lies within a radius of 180 miles from New York City, and we hold it or soon will. In that small strip, reaching from Boston to Delaware Bay, are situated nine-tenths of the war munition factories of the United States, the Springfield Armory, the Waterfleet Arsenal, the Picatinny Arsenal, the Frankfurt Arsenal, the DuPont Powder Works, the Bethlehem Steelworks, and all these will shortly be in our hands. How can you take them from us? How can you get along without them? We can build other munition factories in the West. That will take a year or more, in which time we shall have fortified the whole Appalachian mountain system from Florida to the St. Lawrence, so that no army can ever break through. Do you see? The prince paused with a masterful smile and played with a large signet ring on his third finger. Surely your imperial highness does not think that Germany can conquer the whole of America. Of course not, at least not for many years. We are content with your Atlantic seaboard, the garden spot of the earth in climate and resources. We shall hold this region and develop it along broad lines of German efficiency and German culture. What wonderful improvements we will make! How we will use these opportunities you have wasted! Ha! Let me give you one instance among many of your incredible inefficiency. Those disappearing carriages of your coast defense guns, I suppose they were the pet hobby of some politician with an interest in their manufacturer. But God in himmel, what foolishness! The guns themselves are good enough, but the carriages allow them an elevation of only 10% against a 30% elevation that is possible for guns of equal caliber on our battleships which means that our 12-inch guns outrange yours by a couple of miles simply because we can fire them at a higher angle. You mean that one of your super-dreadnoughts? Exactly. One of our super-dreadnoughts can lie off Rockaway Beach and drop shells from her 12-inch guns into Union Square and the 12-inch guns of your harbor forts, handicapped by their stupid carriages, could never touch her. The conversation now turned to other subjects, and presently the prince was led by enthusiasm or arrogance to make a series of statements that gave extraordinary importance to my interview since they enraged the whole Anglo-Saxon world, particularly our western and middle states. Fortunately, I submitted my manuscript to Frederick William before cabling the interview to London, so there was no danger of his repudiating my words. With brutal frankness, this future ruler of a nation maintained that against German arms America must now go down to defeat just as England went down to partial defeat in 1917, and for the same unchangeable reason that the fittest among nations inevitably survive. Ask your readers in the London Times, Mr. Langston, why it was that in the fall of 1915, 
Germany had been able to put into the field 9 million fully equipped, highly efficient soldiers, whereas England, with nearly the same population, counting her white colonies, had been able to send out only 2.5 million, a third of these being physically defective. Why was that? Was it lack of guns and ammunition, lack of officers and training? Partly so, but something else was lacking. I mean patriotism among the English masses that would give them the desire to fight for England, also a high standard of physical excellence that would make them able to fight effectively and to endure the hardships of the trenches. Now, why should there be more patriotism in Germany than in England? Why should the masses of Germany excel the masses of England in physical vigor? I will tell you why. And the answer applies in some degree to America. It is because the German system of government is better regulated to create patriotism and physical vigor just as it is better calculated to create an efficient war machine. In Germany, we have a concentration of power, a benevolent paternalism that knows the needs of the people and supplies them whether the people wish it or not. For example, in Germany, we have to a great extent abolished poverty and such degrading slum conditions as prevail in English and American cities. We know that slums lead to drink, vice, and physical unfitness. We know that we must kill the slums or see the slums kill efficiency and kill patriotism. In Germany, we hold the capitalist class within strict bounds. We allow no such heaping up of huge fortunes as are common in America through the exploitation of the weak by the strong. We Germans protect the weak and make them stronger, but you English and Americans make them weaker by oppressing them. You make slaves of children in a thousand factories, crushing out their strengths and their hope so that a few more of you can become millionaires. Do you think those children, grown to manhood, will fight for you very loyally or very effectively when you call on them to rally to the flag? What does such a flag mean to them? What does the American flag mean to thousands of American steelworkers forced to toil at the furnaces 12 hours a day for two dollars? 12 hours a day and often seven days a week lest they starve. Why should these men fight for a flag that has waved unashamed over their misery and over the unearned and undeserved fortunes of their taskmasters, Andrew Carnegie and J.P. Morgan? Why should the downtrodden miners in Colorado fight to perpetuate a John D. Rockefeller system of government? What does your imperial highness mean by a John D. Rockefeller system of government? I mean the English and American system of individualism gone mad. Every man for himself and the devil takes the hindmost. 
The result is a trampling of the many by the few, a totally unfair division of the products of toil and such wicked extremes of poverty and riches as are familiar in London and New York but are unknown in Germany. In Germany, the masses are well-housed and well-nourished. In all our cities, cheap and wholesome pleasures abound. Music, beer gardens, great parks with playgrounds and dancing pavilions. It is literally true that work at fair wages with reasonable hours is provided for every German citizen who is able to work. And those unable to work are taken care of. Pensions for the aged, homes for the disabled, state assistance for poor mothers. There are no paupers, no factory slaves in Germany. The central government sees to this, not only as a matter of humanity, but as good policy. We know that every German citizen will fight for the German flag because he is proud of it and has personal reason to be grateful to it, since it represents fair play, large opportunity, a satisfactory life for him and his children. The prince maintained that here were new elements in the problem of Germany's conquest of America. Not only were the invaders more valiant warriors possessed of a better fighting machine, but they came with a moral and spiritual superiority that must make strong appeal to Americans themselves. After yielding to us by force of arms, he went on, your people will come to welcome us when they see how much better off, how much happier they will be under our higher civilization. Mr. Langston, we understand your nation better than it understands itself. I assure you, Americans are sick of their selfish materialism. They are ashamed of the degrading money worship that has stifled their national spirit. Here I challenged him angrily. Do you mean to say that we have no national spirit in America? Not as Germans understand it. You live for material things, for pleasures, for business. You are a race of money schemers, money grovelers, lacking in high ideals and genuine spiritual life, without which patriotism is an empty word. Who ever heard of an American working for his country unless he was paid for it? Think what America did in the Great War. Why was your president so wrought up in 1915 when he assailed Germany with fine praises? Was it because we had violated Belgium? No. When that happened, he had nothing to say. Although the United States, equally with England, was a signatory to the Hague Conference that guaranteed Belgium's integrity. Why did not your president protest then? Why did he not use his fine phrases then? Because the United States had suffered no material injury through Belgium's misfortune. On the contrary, the United States was sure to gain much of the trades that Belgium lost. And that was what he cared about, commercial advantage. 
You were quick enough to protect your trade and your money interests. You were ready enough to do anything for gold, ready enough by the sale of war munitions to bring death and misery upon half of Europe, so long as you got golds from the other half. High ideals, national spirit, there they are. Chapter 9 Our wing of the advancing German army remained in Hartford for four days, at the end of which all signs of disorder had ceased. In fact, there was little disorder at any time. The lesson of New Haven's resistance had been taken to heart, and there was the discouraging knowledge that a row of German six-inch siege guns were trained on the city from the heights of Elizabeth Park, their black muzzles commanding the gray towers and golden dome of the State House, the J. Pierpont Morgan Memorial, the gleaming white new city hall, the belching chimneys of the Underwood typewriter works, and the brown pile of Trinity College. So the invaders' march through New England continued. It's a pitiful story. What could Connecticut and Massachusetts do? Three times between Hartford and Springfield, unorganized bands of Americans armed with shotguns and rifles lay in ambush for the advancing enemy and fired upon them. These men declared that they would die before they would stand by tamely and see the homes and fields of New England despoiled by the invader. Whereupon the Germans announced, by means of proclamations showered upon towns and villages from their advance guard of aeroplanes, that for every German soldier thus killed by Americans in ambush, a neighboring town or village would be burned by firebombs dropped from the sky. And they carried out this threat to the letter, so that for every act of resistance by the fathers and brothers and sons of New England, there resulted only greater suffering and distress for the women and the children. The average man, especially one with a wife and child, is easily cowed when he has no hope, and presently all resistance ceased. What feeble opposition there was in the first week dwindled to almost nothing in the second week, and to less than nothing in the third week. Stamford paid $2 million in gold, Bridgeport $5 million, New Haven $5 million, Hartford $20 million, Fall River $3 million, Springfield $5 million, Worcester $2 million, Providence $10 million, Newport $50 million. The smaller cities got off with half a million each, and some of the towns paid as little as $100,000, but every community paid something and the total amount taken from New England, including a hundred million from New Hampshire, a hundred million from Vermont, and a hundred million from Maine, was eight hundred million dollars, about a third of which was in gold. You can download and read a free copy of the complete book version of Cleveland Moffat's 1916 work, The Conquest of America, A Romance of Disaster and Victory, at the Internet Archive's Open Library at openlibrary.org. Just search for Charles Moffat, M-O-F-F-E-T-T. 
We'll also leave direct links to the book download and illustrations from the book depicting the German invasion of America on the Grading the Nutmeg website at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.org, the Connecticut State Historian's web and Facebook pages, and at the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplored.org. Today's story was voiced by Walter Woodward, who also produced the theme music. Thanks for listening. Keep track of World War I commemorative events near you at the Connecticut in World War I website at ctinworldwar1.org. And watch for the special World War I commemorative spring edition of Connecticut Explored magazine with cover-to-cover stories about Connecticut's multifaceted involvement in the Great War coming soon. To subscribe or purchase back issues, visit ctexplored.org. You can listen to all episodes of Grading the Nutmeg at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com or subscribe on iTunes. I'm Walt Woodward, and I hope you'll come back soon for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.